Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tollest, and this week we're taking another look at housing policy and whether a bold new offer on house building could help turn the Tory fortunes around, whether any party is willing to grasp the nettle on solving the country's housing crisis, and how important this issue will be at the upcoming election. With me to discuss this, we have Conservative former Housing Minister, Brandon Lewis, Polly Neat, Chief Executive of homelessness charity, Shelter, the journalist and commentator, John Oxley, and Millie Mitchell, Senior Researcher at the Centre for London. So obviously last week we had the autumn statement, there was some modest measures in there to kind of boost housing supply with investment on funding to tackle planning backlogs and that sort of stuff. Brandon, starting with you, obviously we didn't have a lot in the Conservative Party conference on housing and that sort of stuff. Did you want to see more in the autumn statement on trying to unblock those kind of housing stuff, but also you know get building a bit more on both the kind of rental side, but also social housing as well? Uh, yes, is the short answer. <laughs> right, okay. I, I, look, I've, I've been very frustrated for a period now. I think we should be doing, and I would have liked to have seen not just the resolution on nutrients, which I think would have been a good thing to do, we were hoping to see in the King's speech, but also some indication of planning reforms. There's been talk about MPPF reform and further ability to make the planning system a bit more efficient and effective. It just takes far too long in this country now um, to go through planning process. That's bad for all types of developers. But also, I still find it astonishing, as I said, at our party conference this year that we are for the first time in probably four if not longer decades in a situation with high interest rates low housing supply and yet not a single product out there to directly help first-time young buyers get on the housing ladder and Mm. I think there's much more we need to be doing to literally get more homes built of all tenures as it happens and I I think I would have liked to have seen more about that it's good for the economy and the right thing to do for people who need a a roof over their heads yeah absolutely Polly I saw from Shelter broadly kind of good news on housing benefit but you said that the pushing it to April 2024 will kind of leave a lot of families with an uncertain kind of winter with that threat of homelessness so she did some some research earlier this month that showed that um, I think one in ten Private renters are now facing risk losing their homes. You know, more than a million, if you include the kind of children in those in those homes. I wonder what you made of of what Jeremy Hunt said. I mean, you know, as you rightly said, we definitely welcome the move on housing benefit, local housing allowance, and that will keep people in their homes. It's, that's really important. It would be better if it was being implemented earlier, but you know, still positive. I mean, there are new homeless stats out this morning. 139,000 children homeless, that's up 7,500 nearly in just three months. And these are people who are being tipped into homelessness because of the sheer unaffordability of private renting and the fact that we're not building homes in this country that people on low incomes can afford to rent. And to Brandon's point, totally right about doing more on house building. One of the things that we need to grasp is that, you know, private renters, more than half of them don't have any savings at all. So these are people at the moment more on the cusp of homelessness than they are on the cusp of home ownership. And actually, if we build affordable, properly affordable social homes, people who are renting will be able to save they will be able to build themselves a decent life. And actually, that is how people ultimately get on the housing ladder. People ultimately get on the housing ladder because they can manage their household finances. Rent isn't taking up almost their entire income. They can save and they can gradually work their way towards that. So I know you'd expect me to say this, but it's shocking that last year only 15% of so-called affordable homes delivered were social homes. And we have got to, yes, build more homes, but 
within that, we have to build more social homes. And the Conservatives have got to see that as a conservative policy, which is what it should be. Can I just cut in? I'll just say something Polly's just said, which I agree with everything she said, actually. But it also goes to this key thing that often gets mixed. People focus on we need to build more homes to get people into ownership or we need more social housing, or, we need more affordable, we need more private rented. Actually, the point Polly's made, I think, is really important. We need all of it yeah. because every single part of it has a knock-on effect yeah, yeah. on another part of it. And that's one of the challenges, actually, I think governments struggle with is actually how do you do something... Back in 2010 to through 2015, we were doing we were looking at the whole sector. I'm not saying everybody feels we got everything right, but we did try and look at things pretty holistically, both pre and post my time. But at the moment, everybody focused on one part of the housing sector or another, and actually they're interlocked and very, yeah. very interactive. Well, we'll kind of come on to the broader targets, but I guess it's, like you say, it's about the right homes in the right places. So you're nodding along to the stuff about social housing. I mean, obviously in, in London, that's kind of the most acute part of it. You recently wrote a, a blog talking about the kind of uh, London having a housing crisis, and there's kind of three underlying issues that are driving it just talk us through some of those issues then and, and what kind of you guys are looking to see in kind of policy terms to try and fix some of those underlying problems mm-hmm. yeah look the housing crisis is national it's very much I'm aware that it's it's everywhere at the centre of London naturally we're most interested in, in how it's happening in London and actually the housing crisis is most acute in London you know one in four Londoners are living in poverty after housing costs are taking into account there's over 150,000 Londoners living in temporary accommodation many of which are children to, to Polly's point in terms of kind of those main drivers that we're we're seeing of that. Part of that is kind of short-termist thinking within government. So taking even, for example, the uprating of local housing allowance, they've said they're going to do it in 2024. The plans are then to freeze it once again. And we know that what happens when you freeze housing allowance is that rents continue to go up. The values of that kind of starts to decrease. You know, it was frozen in 2020. By 2022 to 23, just 2.3% of homes in London were affordable on the housing benefits. It's ridiculous how anyone could could try and get a home in that condition. So we need that kind of more long-term strategic thinking about about where we're going. Mm. And John, to bring you in on this, obviously the kind of house building targets I mentioned, it looks like the Tories are going to miss their 300,000 target that's never really been hit I think the high watermark was was 250,000 they got to but I think even Robert Jenrick who was one of the many people who've been housing secretary over the the past uh, few years said that that was kind of that was never really going to get hit again and that they're sort of miles away you wrote this this piece about kind of the, the making a bold offering on housing actually is a very conservative thing and actually is a way of kind of winning back a lot of voters you know one of the the biggest kind of indicator of, of voting conservative is home ownership so surely the conservative party would want to create more uh, homeowners Absolutely. I mean, the best person to talk about this for really is talking about Harold Macmillan, because he came in as housing secretary in, I think, 1952, 1953. And he built 300,000 homes every year for three years. And they went into the next election, which they won massively by the time he'd become prime minister with a million houses, a million homes for folk was kind of the tagline of that. And it was hugely popular. And it gave the Conservatives another sort of five or six years in power. But particularly, you really look at the polling on this. And where the Conservatives are falling down now, it's with people in their 30s, people in their 40s, who are just deserting the party in droves, Mm. even if they're quite well off. And the big issue for most of those, the big economic issue, is housing. Because no matter where they are in that cycle, even if you've got a pretty good job, renting is eating up a huge amount of your income, or home ownership is. And that doesn't really buy you into conservative ideals. And it's a big thing that more and more people are talking about. It. And they're seeing the government not really do very much. And the Conservative Party really tack in behind 
these older voters who already own their homes. And so the housing crisis is great for them. It is something like, in virtually every constituency in the country, the most common form of housing tenure is actually outright ownership with no mortgage. Yeah. It's about 36 37% everywhere, and that just edges out the others. So it's very easy for the Conservatives to basically say housing crisis great because the people who are voting for us just get richer every single year so long term they need to fix it but in the short term there's a huge electoral advantage for actually saying no not, yeah. not our voters problem yeah brandon you must, be, you must tear your hair out when you hear some of your colleagues kind of doing down this and, and kind of wrecking some of those plans to bring in those kind of broad central targets and that sort of thing and, and i just wondered what you kind of made obviously the, the government would say they're going to meet their target to have a million new homes during this parliament but that three hundred thousand, that macmillan target isn't is never going to be hit is it and it must be very frustrating i think when you you and colleagues know the value i think of, of getting those houses built both you know economically but also to your party as well yeah i mean i've spoken about this before and we're talking a bit, a fair bit this week because of the polling work that we've done at the Adam Smith Institute, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. Over 70% of the population realise there's a housing crisis. Over 50% all over the country recognise there's a challenge in their own area, taking the point about it being just not just in London. And actually shows as well that if you are building the right homes in the right places with proper engagement, it's popular as well. Because what you do find is that point is absolutely right about uh, people who already own their homes are looking at values go up. But those people who own their homes generally have children or want to have children or even have grandchildren that they would like to see get on the housing ladder. Yeah. My kids are both older than I was when I got my first home. They're nowhere near being able to afford their first home. And that is a real challenge for us. So look, what I find particularly disappointing is not just that we're going to miss the 300,000 and look the million is because of what happened way back in and not when I was house minister we were touching the 250,000 and moving upwards but it's dropped off dramatically so this year we're going to see maybe 150,000 in the 12 months from where we are now roughly it could easily drop to 100,000 homes which means you haven't then just got to build 250,000 plus again you've got another backlog to make up and that's partly because we haven't been putting the uh, support in. You know, we took away the support for first-time buyers, which is a large part of the new build market. We've got this challenge in the rental market we've been talking about. But also, we have got a planning system that means that developers, whether they're housing associations, development corporations, or private builders, mm. and people don't realise this, but a lot of our private builders build a lot of the social and affordable housing for housing associations and local authorities, they take now five to ten years to get planning permission. Yeah, I think you referred to it as sclerotic, I think you referred oh, to yeah, it as. I mean, it's, it is utterly ridiculous. Yeah. And some, when you talk to individuals and the experiences they've had anecdotally around the country, it's like a scene from the thick of it, what they have to go through to get planning permission, even for very popular developments. I mean, I spoke to a lawyer recently who was telling me, I'll give you a really good example of this. A developer is looking to develop some homes. I don't know where in the country. Didn't, obviously, as a lawyer, didn't give me the full details, but looking to do a development. They've done all of the consultation with the local community. It's a mixed development, social, affordable, private rented and private residential. They've done all of the engagement. They found out what that local community want to see happen as investment to support it. And they've got 85% support for the development with this extra stuff I think it's a football pitch and community centre etc they're happy to do it and to agree a separate 106 with the authority council officers will not put it to planning because they want them to remove the football pitch and the and the other things and just agree what the council want because the council want to spend money elsewhere in the borough now that might be very worthy yeah, yeah. but that takes away the support for the development that the local community actually have which is where you end up with a community and a developer at loggerheads at no fault of the developer and what actually happens, the whole development is now delayed while they're in these negotiations with the council. It's utterly ridiculous. Yeah. Polly, bring you in on that. Yeah, again, I basically agree with Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> 
I just wanted to add something. So we're in danger of, of all agreeing. That's fine. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind this podcast where we all agree. That's better than when we all shout at each other. I would think I'm like invited on to sort of um, argue with everyone, but no. The only point I would make is about the reference to Macmillan because, you know, number one, that proves that building lots of homes is a conservative, historic policy. But secondly, there's no way Macmillan could have built that many homes without government investment in social homes as a significant part of that total. It's not the whole story, and I completely agree with what Brandon's saying, but it's a vital part of the story. And it's also the way we can start to tackle the unaffordability that is the real issue in the private rented sector. And the government has done something about this because you know, they did get rid of hope value, which is to do with the value of land, which is a major obstacle to building all types of affordable homes. They did tackle that in the uh, levelling up and regeneration bill. But you feel like these measures are stuff that's almost kind of like getting in by the back door. And what we need is the commitment from the top of government, number 10 and the Treasury to this. The other thing, just really quickly. So when I talk to people in the countryside, for example, many of whom are long-term conservative voters in lovely little villages, they realise that their villages are being hollowed out because the people who did work in them can't afford to live in them anymore. Yeah, my, my first job was a reporter in, in Devon, in East Devon, and the town was all people over 60 plus because none of the they'd all moved to Exeter, they'd all moved anywhere yeah. else. And then you end up with, you know, you end up with no shops, you end up with no school, you end up with no pub, mm. because, you know, you, you don't have a sort of rounded, genuine community. And that's what is, I think, a real struggle for people in rural areas. And at the same time, you've got people in, in some of these former red wall seats, which everybody's battling over in the general election. I mean, there you've got people renting privately in their 50s and older who are looking at a really insecure future in private renting. That's not what anyone's picture of private renting is. And the reason private renting is doing so much heavy lifting, I don't want to be a broken record, the reason private renting is doing so much heavy lifting and completely failing at it, I might add, in the sort of total picture of housing is because there's a total lack of commitment to building homes that people on low incomes can actually afford to live in. Yeah, Millie, kind of on that, that kind of short-term approach means that I think it's around five times as much is spent on housing benefit on affordable homes. That pressure on the rental market comes from the fact that people who need uh, social homes are being pushed into the private rental market and all that kind of the the knock-on effect that that has further down the line. And so in London, the planning challenges that Brandon was talking about, is that what is kind of faced in terms of building those social housing? What are the kind of big challenges in getting more social housing built in you know, what is a very rich city, but also has, I think, five of the 10 poorest boroughs in the country as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, London is a very unequal place. There's a lot of bits of London that are doing very well, other places that aren't. In terms of sort of those challenges and barriers to delivering more social housing, I totally like agree with everything that Polly said. Ultimately, it is that current levels of investment are insufficient to deliver the scale of social housing that we need. The kind of public money's role in building affordable housing has substantially declined. Now, less than 30% of housing associations' um, gross expenditure um, is coming from public money, is having to come from elsewhere. And that's really limiting the capacity of kind of places to build. And some parts of London are doing really great things. There are some London councils that are building social homes again. Other local authorities don't have the capacity or the political will in place to do that. Yeah, yeah.
This next segment is brought to you by Mastercard. Whether it's protecting consumers from fraud or supporting small businesses, Mastercard's mission is to connect and power an inclusive digital economy that benefits everyone. With me, I have Pooja Bachu, Director of Public Policy, overseeing Mastercard's policy activities in the UK and Ireland. Pooja leads Mastercard's policy work on inclusion, supporting small businesses and sustainability. So firstly, Pooja, can you just lay out for us a bit what the importance is of fintech and the payment sector to the UK economy in terms of kind of contributing to growth and, and productivity? Yeah, so we all know that digital services and the digital economy as a whole is vital to securing growth. And as an integral part of that, the UK payment sector has been an engine for innovation for the past two and a half decades through the introduction of real-time account-to-account faster payments, chip and pin contactless payments. And importantly, the payment sector has underpinned lots of great fintech innovation. We've seen homegrown UK fintechs really transform finance, improving access to financial services for underserved individuals and communities, entrepreneurs and business owners, all of which helps to boost productivity and growth across the UK economy. A recent report found that a remarkable 98% of UK fintechs significantly boost economic growth and productivity. Digital payments technology specifically, including MasterCards, plays an important role in supporting fintechs, providing innovators with access to a secure global network, expertise and scale that uh, wouldn't otherwise be possible. And these are really important elements in helping startups develop into scale-ups. Now, that's all great, but an important question is how the UK can continue to remain a world-class fintech and payments hub, continue to support social purpose innovation, and in doing so, ensure that we can continue to take advantage of the growth opportunities. That's really interesting. So obviously fintech is, is often thought of improving convenience through those new technologies like chip and pin and contactless and all that kind of stuff. But explain to us a bit how those kind of innovations can also address financial inclusion as well. So inclusion now isn't only about access to mainstream financial services where there has been progress in recent years, but it's increasingly about focusing on more tailored services for niche and underserved groups. Many people now have got irregular income flows because they work in the gig economy, for example, work on zero hour contracts. They may be on lower wages or have poor credit histories or even a lack of housing history because they have recently arrived in the UK. And what we're seeing is that many fintechs are using payments innovation, including in the open banking space, for example, to create products and services that put these type of circumstances right at the center of the product or service. Fintech and payments innovation are also playing a critical role in enabling access to finance for lots of underbanked or underfinanced communities. And this is important because as the FCA estimates, there are still over a million unbanked people in the UK That means over a million people who are likely subject to the poverty premium, which in 2020 equated to over £430 a year for a low-income household and costing the UK economy £2.8 At Mastercard, we're really proud 
to partner with fintechs that are looking to address the needs of these underbanked or underserved individuals and communities by developing products and services that account for faith, sexual orientation, gender, age, ethnicity and social impact and other values-based frameworks that could impact how people live their lives. I'll just share an example of a type of payments technology that, that can really help here. So prepaid cards, another digital payment option that acts as a bridge for financially excluded and hard to reach unbanked individuals. And it really helps them to realise the benefits of digital payments. It helps them to build their digital financial skills in addition to perhaps using cash without having to open a bank account. However, we think their use could, could really be expanded. If I may just share examples of two fintechs that we work with at MasterCard, one of them is called Pocket, that now serves 800,000 customers in the UK with a digital account and a prepaid debit card. This allows them to receive their salary or government benefits. It helps them to send money overseas, receive salary advances, and importantly, it helps them to build their credit history through the provision of smaller loans. We also work with a fintech called Sibstar, which is a new highly secure debit card and app, which is designed to help families living with dementia to safely manage their daily spending. Oh, so just finally then, can you explain how MasterCard's Start Path program is, is helping some of those socially focused fintechs in the UK and just briefly what government can do working with industry and civil society to improve the sector? So at MasterCard, we are committed to using our technology to help people make the most of the digital economy. We've committed to including 1 billion people into the digital economy globally by 2025. And an important part of that is our Start Path programme, where we help fintechs access the right partnerships, co-innovation opportunities, but also engage with MasterCard's global network. In the UK specifically, we've worked with 49 companies, 20% of which are female founded. And these fintechs range from open banking partners to prepaid card providers, crypto companies and sustainable finance platforms. In regards to what government working with industry could do, so we're calling on the government to create a national fintech strategy to help deliver more focused long term support for the next generation of UK fintechs with a particular focus on support for social purpose fintechs. We believe that this national fintech strategy would set out how to close the funding gaps for social purpose fintechs so that they can not only start but actually scale. Also consider improvements or changes that may be required to create a regulatory regime that specifically supports social purpose fintechs to start and scale. But also we're calling on regulators to establish an inclusion accelerator. So a regulatory sandbox for innovators that are specifically focused on products and services and solutions for underserved consumers, allowing them to test these solutions with financial inclusion benefits in a more controlled environment. 
John, kind of on the, the broader sense, we're talking about kind of long-term plans, short-term plan. Obviously, the Conservatives have got a year to an election. There's a lot of criticism that, that you know, that looking to short-term fixes and some of these problems that we're talking about, these are long-term problems, getting this stuff sorted out. The fact is we've now got the 16th housing minister or 15 housing ministers because Lee Rowley counts twice. Um, you know, we've got another one, <laughs> one here. You know, I think, uh, you know, if they keep going at this some rate, I think every member of the party will be housing minister before an election. How can you create policy when you have those kind of changes? And what does it say, I suppose, to the public, you know, if you've got chopping and changing that whole time? Yes, and that's been one of the problems generally through the chaotic nature of, say, the last four or five years of the Conservative Party, because those changes often aren't anything to do with what someone's done as housing minister. You're not moved on from housing minister because you're bad at it. Often you're moved on because you're good and they <laughs> sort of bring you to a bigger role. But, yeah, See, it's... Brandon, Brandon agreeing there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just sitting yeah, very quietly. <laughs> you know, what it does mean is someone goes into the department, by the time they've got a head around it, by the time they've met all the industry leaders, they've got to know the civil service, they've worked on a plan, they're starting to get it in motion, they get a call from Downing Street and it's time to move on to fishing policy or something. Yeah. And so you can never have anything that runs all the way through. And, you know, and I think it's a problem across multiple government departments mm. that it does start to look like these positions are not about policy and not about doing stuff, but mm. about shuffling people around for political Games. Yeah, I actually look back at you, and I think Labour got through nine housing ministers in their 13 years as well. So it's no, not even necessarily just a Conservative uh, issue, you know. And uh, are you kind of any closer to understanding why Rachel McLean was moved out of that job? You know, there's talk of tensions with her and Gove, or was it simply just because of you know reshuffling, going to move bodies around? You know, because it, it did seem as though she was she was she was getting somewhere, I suppose, with both the industry and and in, and with MPs. Well, I haven't heard anything about the, the, that the situation with her, and my question. I, I don't. I'm not sure that's that's right, but sure. But, we, but it, look, I think we've had something like 10 since I left the job. And I, I mean, I, I think I'm the longest serving joint housing planning minister since the Second World War. And I only years. did two years. <laughs> um, look, I agree with disagree with, with the comments about the time. I mean, it is ridiculous to have had that many ministers in any yeah. role. We had, and I agree. I think one of the, the benefits of that 2010 to 15 period was you had stability in quite a lot of roles. And it does take time. And the housing market, for, as I said at the outset, is so complex. The interaction between different parts of it. We, we haven't even touched on the fact that I think one of the one of the bigger issues as well with getting planning isn't just the planning system itself is sporadic because the system and the regulations, the rules are slow, but actually we don't have enough planners in this country. And how do we change that? Should we be getting Homes England to have regional hubs of planners that councils draw on and, th and changing all that dramatic? All of these things interact. It's very complex. It takes time to understand that. Well, I slightly disagree. And I'm not defending having so many in a time. Yeah. I can't defend that. It's, it's crazy. But as a minister in a role like that, and there's other roles in government that have that kind of complexity, it, it does take, I would say, a year before you really could say you understand the in intricacies of the brief. And you know the developers well enough to know when they're trying to pour a fast one on you or convince you something that's a bit you know, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. not quite right or who you can trust, which of the best housing association. I mean, the housing association sector itself is not straightforward. You've got about 1,600 different housing associations, many of whom have never built a house, not in any of our lifetimes anyway. Yeah, of course. I mean, and how you deal with that and how you interact with that compared to others like L&Q that do huge amounts of work of, of developing and building houses, as do some others. So, so I think you do need a bit more stability than we've got. But to be fair, 
the ultimate stability is the civil service and the Secretary of State. Yeah. Polly, obviously you, have to, obviously, you have to interact with ministers, try and influence policy, and it must be quite difficult. You put together a, a pack on the on the minister, and by the time you've just got your head around who they are and worked out how to pronounce yeah. their name, they're, they're gone. I mean, it is, it is really problematic. And, you know, you do end up explaining the same thing over and over and over again. <laughs> and it is, it is really problematic. I, I, I agree. Well, and I would just say there is a, there's a really good piece of work that's just been done for the Autumn Statement by Lord Richard Harrington. Yeah. on foreign direct investment and one of the big critiques in that is in, in the same way on foreign direct investment the continual change of both ministers and actually civil servants as well meaning that big international corporations just as they get to know or understand who the civil servant or the ministry is they're gone again yeah, yeah. And, and as Polly said they keep repeating themselves eventually they just say oh we can't be doing with this yeah. it doesn't matter about the tax yeah. rates we're going to a different country where we can just get to know somebody yeah Polygon I think the other thing is that you know a housing minister if they're, particularly if they're guiding legislation through they have to build relationships with their own backbenchers and explain the benefits of the legislation. If you take something like the Renters Reform Bill, for example, beyond frustrating, there's delays, there's a losing of nerve. The government is, you know, it's really in danger of not holding its nerve on that bill, in which case those homelessness figures are going to get even worse by the time of the general election because people are, are being tipped out of private renting into homelessness continually and that has got to be sorted and I think you know what we're seeing now is a real worry Um, and I do worry that the changing in housing ministers is part of the reason why the promised reforms to private renting have taken so long to get through and even now we're not seeing that bill I don't think really powerfully directed uh, through Parliament. Yeah, Millie, just kind of on that, we're looking at the kind of rent, reforming the renter, but it's also the other benefits as well. I know that Central have looked at it. This, you know, it's it's the effect on cost of living, it's the effect on sustainability by fixing that kind of broken housing market and the kind of structural unfairness in in, in housing in the capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's all completely intersected. Going back to those poverty stats I shared earlier, you know, that has knock-on effects elsewhere, especially in cost of living. If we're looking at kind of retrofit and kind of the um, energy efficiency of our of our buildings and of our homes, you know, London has got some of the most energy efficient homes but then of those homes that aren't currently energy efficient are some of the most difficult ones to retrofit what that means is that people's bills are shooting up and higher because they're living in poorly insulated homes and many people also obviously experiencing sort of damp and mold as a result so yeah, it's all related yeah i think something like uh, equivalent of one child in every classroom in london living in temporary accommodation and stuff as well and that's obviously has a massive impact on their ability to learn and and, and grow as well mm-hmm. and temporary accommodation as well I, this is sort of my favorite bone to pick sure the, the term temporary is completely misleading for this kind of accommodation so many people are actually living in it for years and years at a time and the kind of conditions that people are in often overcrowded often very far away from schools from work and all the rest of it it's 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 so commonly used as it's like you said more than one child in every classroom is is living in it but it's ridiculous that we call it temporary when it is <laughs> yeah, frankly yeah. not and what we need is more investment in long-term social housing to move people out of these temporary un- frankly completely unsuitable properties mm. into actual homes so they yeah. can start fresh it's also the condition of temporary accommodation I actually think the term temporary accommodation is quite sanitised and if people actually saw what people are living in 
like we do every single day, they would be absolutely horrified. And it, this is far from being only in London. Yeah, mm-hmm. John, you know, there's one of the things that we're talking about, the legislation bringing in the um, the proposed ban on the sale of new leasehold houses has not been included in the <laughs> leasehold reform bill, which kind of shows you the difficulty uh, in trying to get this stuff. It's a, it's a bit of a rush post kind of the King's speech. And I suppose it kind of shows you the problem with chopping and changing and not being able to get your ducks in a row on, on what your kind of housing policy is going to be going forward. Absolutely, you know, Parliamentary time runs out much more quickly than I think most governments reckon with. Yeah. And you know, anything that's not been done yet is going to be really hard to get through, particularly if it's the sort of thing where it's going to have a rough ride from some backbenchers, yeah. where you're going to have industry groups speaking about it. You know, leasehold is going to be a big one for those. You know, potentially you get into issues in the Lords. And before you know it, Parliament's not sitting for those chunks of time. Then you've called an election and it's gone. And so it shows that these things that sort of kick around for three or four years during a Parliament, you suddenly get into the last six months and you've not got the time to get it through. You've not got the time to implement it. And then you're out of power. Mm. Yeah, speaking of running out of time, I know, Brendan, you've got to rush back to the House at, at some point. I just wondered, before we wrap up, what do you want to see from, from you? Do you think that obviously there is a little bit more time before an election? Do you think there is a chance for a big offer on house building, on home ownership? And, and do you think that is important as we see that kind of, we talk about that that median Conservative voter growing in age, to try and drag that back down, the kind of the, the dream of home ownership. Can it be offered again at an election? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely true. We are you know, There's limited parliamentary time. If you take the May local elections next year, there's about 13 legislative weeks in any given parliamentary week. There's actually probably two days of government business with opposition day debates, back bit, et cetera. Well, so there's far more state questions than there used to be as well. Exactly. Right? So, you, But to deliver more homes and to put in place things to deliver more homes does not necessarily require primary legislation. I think there's a thing we've got, and I've been guilty of this, I know we all have in government and all parties do, from time to time you do legislation because by doing it in legislation, it makes a statement, it gets reported. We end up talking about it on a podcast like this. But a lot can be done on the legislation we already have. Yeah. And some of this is about putting the finance in the right place. Some of it about is easing the system. Some of it is about setting out a very clear statement of intent of where you are going as well. And I think at the very least, we need to be clearer about a big, bold offer that we are saying to people, if you vote for us at the next election, you and your family in the future will have a good future. And a lot of that is down to you will have a home. People know they've got a job, money in their pocket and somewhere to live. Mm. And actually having a really good, bold offer on that, I think is hugely important because... Ultimately, if we want people to vote Conservative for many, many years, we need my kids today and their friends, as much as my generation and older generations to me, to see that we have something to offer. And I think housing is key to that, not least of all, because people want to know they can have a roof over their head, but the effect on our economy, if you look at our GDP flows, ebbs and flows and growths over the years, for the last few decades, it follows housing delivery. Yeah. Construction is such a big part of our economy. 100,000 homes a year is 1% of GDP. You can argue with supply lines it's closer to 3% of GDP. And we need to get that figure well, back I, up. For and our I economy. know people who work in the industry currently that are saying they're having jobs cancelled and there isn't a lot on the books going forward in terms of. Yeah. In terms of well, what's happening is, first of all, people aren't buying the homes because interest rates are high and there's no product to support them out. If you're taking the private sector, you can't get planning permission. So developers have to slow down their building programs because councils aren't doing their local plans. Over nutrients, they've just stopped giving planning permissions or they haven't got energy supplies. They can't allow planning permissions and a whole range of things like that. So, a developer can't carry on building knowing they can get another bit of land to start on next year and the year after. They have to make this current one last until they get another plan. So, everything starts clogging up. And it's exactly the same for housing associations. Yeah. They don't have a fast track through planning. No, no. And we've got to get that sorted out. You know, it, it just takes far too long in this country at the moment to get planning. Most developers want a yes, obviously, from planning, but they all want certainty. 
If it's going to be a no, at least have a proper clear no early. Having to take years and spend lots and lots of money just pushes up the cost of all housing again across all sectors. So we've got to sort that system out. And a good bold offer on that is a, a signal of intent we can do, and also regulatory without primary legislation. There is a lot we can do. We've talked a lot about you know about about London, understandably, and obviously in terms of the Conservatives, apart from outside a couple of small pockets, they don't really have a lot of seats. But it is an example of where they could make a big offer and it could make a big difference in terms of the future in terms of housing overall right mm. well there's there's two things there they don't have a lot of seats in a lot of inner cities so very easily they could unleash building in the inner cities build thousands of flats with no electoral impact to the conservatives at all because those places are never going to vote for them so they don't need to worry about sort of annoying the people who own homes there but the broader thing i think for the conservatives is you know, when you look over the long term, it flows outwards from cities. And, mm. you know, around London, this is a huge problem. And you look at the sort of the Surrey seats that the Conservatives, you know, it is their heartlands. Well, you've got a load of people who are in their 30s and their 40s. They're priced out of London. They move to those seats and they're going to move to them with no intention of voting Conservative at the moment. And I think that's something you're going to see quite a bit of starting in the next general election but on a 10-15 year trajectory you see a lot of the Tory heartlands be really affected by the consequences of the housing crisis. Yeah and we're seeing the Lib Dems chipping away in some of those seats trying to win back some of those people. It must be music to your ears hearing the idea that you could just, the Tories might just go for it in cities you know and stuff regardless of their voters because that's what you, you, you kind of want to see. What are the kind of the big things from I guess from both parties we've seen you know Labour have been a little bit stymied. I think I saw some figures suggesting that one in four of their MPs has voted against development in their constituencies. The Lib Dems had a massive rout at their conferences. The leadership wanted to scrap their house building targets and then the members rejected it but so what are the kind of big things you think at an election for a city like London you know it's already very Labour focused on Labour heartlands but what do you, what do you think could, could kind of shift the dial in terms of housing policy? Yeah I think it's um, it's a really interesting question especially sort of what John was saying about that kind of what we're likely to be seeing in outer London is the number of renters in outer London has been increasing. What we think of as sort of suburban, probably safer Tory areas are very much no longer. Yeah, the kind uh, of zone three and four, West London and that sort yeah, of Yeah, the, the kind of the voter makeup there is really, really changed as a result of the housing crisis. I mean, I'd sort of push back on, they can just build loads and loads and loads in inner London. I think densification is definitely part of the conversation, but there's not enough. As we look out across yeah, the, the beautiful view we've got ahead of us. But there's not enough land in London just to meet its housing need by densification alone. We do need to be looking at kind of beyond London's borders, looking at the Green Belt, obviously. So growing, Labour, the, growing the city beyond the M25 and, and, and beyond that. Outside yeah, that. yeah, definitely. And But strategically and sensibly and in, in a sustainable way in planned communities with the, that have the kind of infrastructure that's needed to, to support them. But I think the idea that London could just meet its own housing need is one that we can't stick with. Well, Polly, final word to, to, to you then on that kind of growing London, but growing other cities and, and you know, they'll ease some of those problems that you've, you've been talking about. And, and so what are you kind of lobbying both the, the Conservatives and the opposition uh, Labour parties, you know, ahead of the election to try and to try and fix some of these problems. I mean, I just want to see ambition yeah. on housing, but I want to see credible ambition on housing, and it's got to have investment behind it. You know, the point's already been made. I think just setting numerical targets for new homes generally. It's not credible anymore, one. Uh, and secondly, um, when we do that, we don't end up with enough social homes as part of that. And that's because the system is rigged against 
the delivery of social homes and that has got to be sorted. I want to see commitment on renting. I want to see the government hold its nerve on the Renters' Reform Bill and and Labour is committed to that. There's no reason we have to wait for the election for that and I think it would be a vote winner in some of those key uh, red wall seats, for example, that the government is worried about. And what I don't want to see, I suppose, is a load of sort of shiny new or rehashed home ownership products that actually don't get people that otherwise wouldn't be able to afford their own home. They don't get those people into home ownership. No, they they overheat the market a lot of time as well, don't they? They overheat the market. They cause a lot of problems. So we don't want to see that. And that's why I say, yes, ambition, but credible ambition that looks right across the spectrum of need and particularly we have got to do something about the homelessness and temporary accommodation crisis that we're seeing because actually in a country like the UK the conditions that people now are forced to live in because of all the issues that we've been talking about about the housing market are intolerable and there's hundreds and thousands of them and we just can't be doing with it. And this Conservative government proved that it could be done with the kind of everyone in programme in the in the pandemic. And so, you know, I think that's making it harder for them to justify not not doing it now, given that they managed to prove it was possible in the in a pandemic. I don't know how repeatable that process is. You know, it used, for example, a lot of hotel space and that was vacant at the time. Yeah. But I think what a lot of the experience with the pandemic show, and whether it's that or whether it's the vaccine programme, if you find a goal and you credibly basically say we are going to throw whatever we need to at this problem you do get a long way towards fixing it and you know, we need to be real about the the scale of this problem I think there was a think tank report that said the sort of gap between the number of homes we have and the number of homes we need to sort of keep things stable and maybe see prices drop is about four million homes so that is about on current rates about 20 years just to catch up we need to do something radical to break through this that's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicsome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day week newsletters by clicking on the link on our homepage. Thanks again to my brilliant guests, Brandon Lewis, Polly Neat, John Uxley and Millie Mitchell. Thanks all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you podcast and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>